All right, everybody. It is Wednesday, April 5th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news, or at least we try to, and read between the lines so you don't have to. Mosh, anything going on in the news lately? It was one of those days on Tuesday, (laughs) Jill. (laughs) We had elections in Chicago and Wisconsin, a certain former president being indicted for the first time ever. Totally unpredictable. You know, normal day. But the reality check is uh, a friend of mine picked me up. We had to go somewhere quickly with the kids. And I'm just like, oh, man, it has been a day and I've got so much work. And she was like, why? What's going on? And she meant it. I mean, not everybody is following the news 24-7. Frankly, I'm jealous of those people. I think they probably lead much happier lives. There's a balance, right? You don't want to be completely disconnected, but being constantly connected is not healthy either. But we're appreciative of all of you who listen to the Mo News podcast as often as possible. The balance is just listen to this podcast and you're good. There you go. Okay, with that, let's get to the headlines. A wild day in New York as former President Trump is officially indicted. We're going to break down the charges, the politics, and what happened inside the courtroom, plus the theater outside. Why Tennessee lawmakers are set to expel three members of their state house because of a gun control protest. A top aide to a former Maryland governor goes on the run for weeks. The FBI caught up to him and now he is dead. The latest on that story. What President Biden is saying about whether artificial intelligence is dangerous. Johnson and Johnson ups its offer to nine billion dollars in the lawsuit that's taken years accusing its baby powder of causing cancer. A new report on the staggering number of people worldwide who struggle with infertility. And to the victor go the White House visit, or does it? Jill Biden walking back her offer to have Iowa join the LSU women's basketball champs at the White House. And another controversy around the women's tournament. And Mosh has on this day in history. We throw it back to Pocahontas today, Jill, and a little bit of Simon and Garfunkel. All right, let's start with our top story. History in the making. Former President Trump has officially been charged by a New York grand jury with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. On Tuesday, for the first time, we learned the exact charges when that indictment was unsealed after Trump was arraigned in a Manhattan courtroom. He pleaded not guilty to all charges. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg says that the charges stem from what he's calling several catch and kill schemes to undermine the 2016 presidential election. Prosecutors say that the scheme involved falsifying business records to conceal payments to three different people. Okay, so we're going to walk through them. One was that $130,000 payment that Trump's attorney, Michael Cohen, paid to Stormy Daniels to cover up their affair. So Trump allegedly reimbursed Cohen for paying off Daniels through checks from his own bank account, each, quote, illegally disguised as a payment for legal services rendered pursuant to a non-existent retainer agreement. Then prosecutors also say that the National Enquirer paid $30,000 to a former Trump Tower doorman who had claimed to have a story about a child that Trump fathered out of wedlock. And then there was a third payment of $150,000 to another woman, believed to be former Playboy model Karen McDougal, to cover up an affair. So Trump then, quote, explicitly directed a lawyer who then worked for the Trump organization, Michael Cohen, 
to reimburse the inquirer. Apparently, the inquirer refused payment, but did admit to making false business entries. Former Inquirer boss David Pecker appears to be a key witness here, in addition to former Trump attorney Michael Cohen. Where do these 34 counts come from? 11 counts related to invoices from Cohen. Prosecutors say that he submitted phony invoices for legal fees. 11 other counts for checks written by Trump or using his money to reimburse Cohen. And then there are 12 counts related to accounting records made for the reimbursements in Trump's books. Uh, D.A. Brad talked to the media after the arraignment. Here's a bit of what he had to say. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. He also caused others to make false statements. As this office has done time and time again, we today uphold our solemn responsibility to ensure that everyone stands equal before the law. No amount of money and no amount of power changes that enduring American principle. Okay, so that was Alvin Bragg. We also heard from Trump's attorneys who basically said there is nothing to see here. Today's unsealing of this indictment shows that the rule of law died in this country because while everyone is not above the law, no one's below it either. And if this man's name was not Donald J. Trump, there is no scenario we'd all be here today. As for Trump himself, he is already back in Florida at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, he addressed uh, supporters at his resort on Tuesday night, stressing he did nothing wrong, calling the prosecution politically motivated. Here's a quick clip. And I never thought anything like this could happen in America. Never thought it could happen. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. So, Jill, let's get into the indictment here. Uh, And as all of you have been listening, it's not easy to explain, right? It's complex. It's 16 pages, 34 counts. But you can summarize it by saying this. They're all related to documents, falsified documents, related to this scheme to basically call reimbursements uh, for hush money payments legal expenses. And there was no legal retainer between Trump and Cohen. So these were not legal expenses. Hence falsified documents. So you have the Stormy Daniels payment, you have the Karen McDougal payment, you have the payment to the doorman. Uh, they, you know, were spinning it through hoops through the National Choir, through Michael Cohen. But then it all comes to Trump's bookkeeping. So no one here really disputes. I mean, the Trump attorneys do and Trump does. But for the most part, even uh, Trump allies are like, yeah, he probably did this. These are misdemeanors, typically findable for a certain amount of money. But what Bragg does in this indictment is he's trying to use those falsification of documents to say he did that, Trump did that, to commit a larger crime, a felony crime. But then what he fails to do in the indictment, Jill, is cite what that second crime was. Now, he said in a press conference on Tuesday, I don't have to list that second crime. But if you're going after the former president of the United States, the first indictment ever of a former president, you would think that he would offer a more foolproof indictment. So again, it's clear these 34 counts, and by the way, think about these 34 counts as sort of counts that are all related to each other. So it's sort of like finding you for every mile per hour you go over the limit. That's what these 34 counts are. Again, misdemeanors. But to get to the felony, what is the second crime? You did this crime to commit a second crime, but I'm not going to tell you what that crime is, but he alludes to the fact that it's related to election law, that it was to try to basically have this conspiracy not to tell voters what was actually happening with his money. Was it New York state election law? Was it federal election law? Well, federal election law takes precedence. And interestingly, many people will cite 
the Department of Justice and the Federal Election Commission never went after Trump on these election law violations. And yet Bragg is trying to use these violations, these alleged violations, to trump up, so to speak, these allegations into felonies. So there's some creative work done by Bragg here, not to say he's not gonna be able to follow through with this, but what's interesting, everyone, is that even Trump critics, and I'll include here John Bolton, his former national security advisor, Mitt Romney, the senator from Utah, former presidential candidate, one of the few Republicans who voted twice to convict Trump on impeachment. They're among those. uh, Another one is Ty Cobb, a former Trump attorney, who also no fan of Trump anymore. All three of those men say Trump has no business being president again. They all reacted to this indictment saying, that's it? That's all you got? And so there's a lot of, again, Trump critics, even Republican Trump critics, who are like, I was expecting more from this indictment. Now, there's a lot of hoops here that will have to be jumped through in order to get to trial. That includes, you know, a whole bunch of a discovery phase. There's going to be multiple uh, motions by Trump's team to dismiss this or to uh, cut certain charges out or to bring the felony charges down to misdemeanor. And those are hoops that Bragg will have to jump through over the course of the next few months. So this is by no means foolproof. It's not foolproof. It'll go to a jury trial. Uh, but it is very interesting when you look at this legal case here that you can't simply explain it, right, Jill? You tried to, I'm trying to. (laughs) It's complex and that's a problem. And so think about that complexity, you as a listener, you as an American being like, yeah, it sounds like he did something, but this seems really complicated. Now think about trying to get a jury to unanimously convict someone on that. I'm glad you mentioned Mitt Romney and John Bolton. John Bolton was being interviewed on CNN right after that indictment was unsealed. And he seemed genuinely disappointed because he wanted a stronger case. And, and he was well, like sad about it. Well, there's a bunch of Republicans who do not want Trump to be president again. They're like, we had four years. We're ready to move on. And the last thing they want is to strengthen this guy ahead of another presidential primary. And their concern is that you have a case here that ultimately is sort of weak. And will reinforce to the public what Trump is saying, which is this is all political. They're just coming after me. It's going to put Trump in the headlines. It gives them a chance to be on the news every day. And by the way, it comes, and most people aren't talking about this, Jill. There was another 2016 candidate who actually faced a fine for falsifying records. Her name was Hillary Clinton. And the Federal Election Commission went after her and found that her campaign had falsified records. You might remember the whole idea of the PP tape the research on on Trump and Russia (laughs) and the connection. Well, that was research that the Clinton campaign paid an opposition firm to do that the Clinton campaign called, wait for it, legal expenses. The Federal Election Commission went after the Clinton campaign on that, made them pay a fine. There was no indictment. There were no charges. They said, pay the fine and this will go away. And that was another 2016 presidential candidate who happens to be from New York, who called something that wasn't legal expenses, legal expenses, and paid a fine. So many people are pointing that being like, well, this appears to be a little unfair here. So there's a lot of questions, a lot of doubts. And so a lot of Democrats celebrated on Tuesday, a lot of Republicans, the opposite, circling around Trump. And then some Republicans were like, oh man, you Democrats, we actually wanted him gone. But like John Bolton and Romney said, you guys came with a very weak case. We're stuck with this guy forever. Um, (laughs) I do wanna mention Trump's demeanor today. He did not look happy walking into and out of court, despite putting on a show on Tuesday night. 
Uh, people who know him well say he did not want to be indicted. Maggie Haberman, who we've mentioned on yesterday's podcast, uh, she and Jonathan Swan reported in the New York Times. They wrote, people close to Mr. Trump have been blunt. No one wants to be indicted or arrested. And Mr. Trump is no exception. While he is putting up a controlled front, his closest associates believed he was just masking his anxiety. Jill, you're talking about the former leader of the free world, the former commander in chief in a very rare situation for him, which is a situation he's not in control of, right? He likes to be in control. He likes to interrupt. He likes to be the lead communicator. And here he is there sitting, listening to a judge that is literally also warning him, being like, if you tweet some nasty stuff again and you know cause a riot or whatever, there are going to be ramifications. And I'm sure Trump was told by his attorneys, like, you need to listen to the judge. The judge can do a lot of damage to you. So please don't act out. <laughs> Please listen, it, especially for that period of time. He was in court for just under an hour on Tuesday. Let's talk timing here. The next hearing date for motions, that's nine months from now. That's set for December 4th. The judge says that he expects Trump to attend that hearing. His lawyers pushed back. Yeah, they were saying, Jill, that like, look at the theater that I created by having Trump in court. Do you really want this guy to be back in court? Like, wasn't that a total pain? And the judge was like, yeah, that was a pain. Maybe we'll discuss it. But for now, Trump's got to be back here in December. Um, as far as the trial, the prosecutors want a trial to start next January, which happens to be just as primary voting gets underway. Trump's attorneys actually want it pushed back even further to next spring. So this thing not going away. Not going away. And it comes, Jill, as we've been talking about these other legal cases Trump is facing, right? The uh, federal cases related to January 6th, the federal case related to classified documents, the potential Georgia indictment. So it just goes to show you, I mean, that when it comes to these major cases, they give a lot of prep time to the attorneys. You know, the Trump attorneys are being like, we need even more time. Give us a year to like get ready for this case. Um, so you're gonna be talking about, we're gonna be talking about these cases, unfortunately, folks, on this podcast in 2025, 2026. It's unclear how long it goes. And by the way, he could be president again, and that could freeze these cases. Jill, one thing I should add, we had uh, one of our producers, Emily Gross, outside the court all day on Tuesday. And listen, people were worried about potential violence, etc. It was not violence. It was more comedy, frankly, theater. You had about 150 or so protesters, but 300 media. So basically for every protester, there were two reporters. Uh, of those uh, protesters, about 100 were anti-Trump, 60 or so. 60 or so pro-Trump. One of them was Marjorie Taylor Greene. She showed up to speak, but it turns out that one of the pro-Trump people passed out whistles, but the people were blowing the whistles while Marjorie was speaking, so she wasn't really able to get her word out. She did do an interview afterwards uh, where she did compare Trump to Nelson Mandela and Jesus Christ, saying they've all been arrested and faced persecution, so Trump is just like that. So that, <laughs> we'll leave that there, Jill. And... Of course, who else showed up on Tuesday? The one and only George Santos. <laughs> when asked by reporters, what are you doing here? Why are you here? He said, because I can be here. He strolled around. He's wearing very interesting sunglasses. At some point, he walks off a few minutes later. Reporters still chasing him, being like, well, why are you leaving so quickly? He's like, well, I was here to support Trump, but you guys made my life so difficult. I'm leaving now. <laughs> I love that you posted that because he was... I don't know what he was expecting, <laughs> but <laughs> I guess the media was just all over him. He's like, you're making this unbearable. 
you literally had 300 reporters. They're kind of like, okay, the protests didn't amount to much. Who's here? Marjorie. Okay, now Marjorie. Love. Who's here? George Santos. I mean, George <laughs> Santos. Like, if there's, I'm not sure there's much else in the world, Jill, that reporters who they want to talk to more than George Santos. Because you're like, what are you doing here, man? He's like, I'm here to support Trump. And because I can't be here. He's like, but you're being mean to me and you're being annoying. So I'm going home now. <laughs> Once again, Mosh, the congressman from my home district, the third district in New York. If you're looking uh, for a replacement, Jill may put her hat into the ring. <laughs> uh, all donations can right now go to Mo News. All right, Jill, we have a lot more to get to. But first, we want to thank some of our advertisers this week. I'm going to start with Magic Spoon Cereal. We'll be doing On This Day a little bit later in this podcast. And so we talk nostalgia often on this show. Magic Spoon Cereal has joined us as a partner. And they've replicated some of your favorite flavors from your youth in a more wholesome way. They have a new variety pack that includes peanut butter, frosty, cocoa, and fruity flavors. It allows you to get your breakfast cereal nostalgia on in a low-carb way. The great thing is they're gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and sugar-free. There's a special deal right now for the Mo News community. You can head over to magicspoon.com slash monews to grab a variety pack and try it today. The promo code, again, is monews at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is actually so confident in their product, it is backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like Magic Spoon cereal for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. Remember again, you can get that next delicious bowl of high-protein cereal over at magicspoon.com slash monews. Use the code monews for $5 off. Now to Athletic Greens. I've been drinking their AG1 supplement in the mornings. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. Easy, quick, and lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, time now for the speed read from the Tennessean. Tennessee Republican lawmakers took the first steps Monday to expel three Democratic members from the state house for their role in a recent gun control protest at the state capitol. The extraordinarily rare move resulted in a confrontation between lawmakers and supporters opposing the move. It has further fractured an already deep political division inside of the Tennessee legislature. Resolutions have been filed against Representatives Gloria Johnson, Justin Jones, and Justin Pearson after they led chants with a bullhorn from the House floor with supporters in the gallery last Thursday. It briefly interrupted events in the state house. The Republican resolution declared that the three had participated in, quote, disorderly behavior and did knowingly and intentionally bring disorder and dishonor to the House of Representatives. As we reported here on the podcast, hundreds of protesters packed the Capitol last week calling for the Republican led state house to pass gun control measures in response to the Nashville school shooting that resulted in the deaths of six people. As the chants echoed throughout the Capitol, Jones, Johnson, and Pearson approached the front of the House chamber with a bullhorn. 
As the three shared the bullhorn and cheered on the crowd, the Republican speaker quickly called for a recess and then later vowed that the three would face consequences. Yeah, this is getting a lot of attention on social media. Skeptics saying of all the ways you punish people for a protest, you're going so far as to expel lawmakers here. But something important to keep in mind here is majority rules. And in the case of Tennessee, supermajority rules. The state house literally has 99 lawmakers, 75 Republicans and 24 Democrats. So you have this Republican supermajority. It only takes 66 votes to expel. So they actually don't need all Republicans to vote in favor of expulsion here. This vote right now is set for Thursday morning. We will stay on top of it all week. Expelling lawmakers is an extraordinary action. Apparently, it's only happened a couple times since the Civil War. The last lawmaker to be expelled was a Democratic senator for wire fraud charges. The last Republican to face expulsion was a few years before that over sexual harassment allegations. Again, Democrats saying here that, you know, they did interrupt, but they were just cheering on the protesters in the gallery. They were, you know, letting them know that they were being heard, that ultimately they did interrupt proceedings for a a few minutes there. But typically for these situations, you might get a slap on the wrist. You might be told not to do this again. Uh, You might get some temporary penalty. But to be expelled permanently from the House body is a pretty significant, pretty significant punishment. And so we will uh, see if the Republicans in Tennessee uh, follow through with that on Thursday. Okay, this story from the Washington Post, Roy McGrath, a fugitive who had been a top aide to former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, died on Monday as the result of a confrontation with the FBI in the area of Knoxville, Tennessee. So he had been the subject of a 21-day manhunt. It started when McGrath failed to show up in a federal court in Baltimore. In a statement Monday night, the FBI said that it was reviewing an agent-involved shooting during the arrest of that subject, Roy McGrath. He sustained injury and was transported to the hospital A lot of questions, though. It's still not clear whether he died from gunfire from an agent or whether it was a self-inflicted wound. He is believed to have shot himself following the traffic stop, although it's unclear whether that or shots from law enforcement killed him. McGrath was set to face wire fraud and embezzlement charges on March 13th, stemming from alleged financial improprieties as the head of a Maryland agency. Yeah, so March 13th is when the trial was supposed to start, but then McGrath doesn't show up for his trial in Baltimore. And that's when a manhunt begins. In fact, the FBI put out a reward for him. Eventually, after three weeks, as you said, he was found in Knoxville, Tennessee. And that's when the encounter with the FBI happened. Now, most of us have never heard of this guy, but there are a lot of questions in regards to this case, which is why it's getting some national attention now. McGrath rose to become one of Larry Hogan. He was the former governor of Maryland. Actually, Hogan ran for president a few years ago. And so McGrath was one of Hogan's most trusted advisors until the Baltimore Sun, the newspaper there, broke news that McGrath had gotten nearly a quarter million dollar severance in 2020 upon leaving an agency. And they would eventually uncover more potential wrongdoing that led to his indictment in 2021 on wire fraud and embezzlement charges connected with his time at the Maryland Environmental Service. From Axios, Johnson & Johnson said it's offering nearly $9 billion to resolve lawsuits accusing the company of selling baby powder that caused cancer. J&J was facing tens of thousands of lawsuits related to the company's talc-based powder. Uh, The company disclosed the offer yesterday. The $8.9 billion in payments to alleged victims 
would be paid over 25 years to resolve all of the current and future talc claims, Johnson & Johnson said in a statement. The company originally offered $2 billion and says it has secured commitments from over 60,000 current claimants to support the deal. Yeah, law firms who say they represent 70,000 claimants in the litigation say they support now this settlement now that it's gone up to $9 billion. Keep in mind here, by the way, J&J, as part of this payment, says it's not admitting any wrongdoing, but that fighting the cases would have taken decades and posed significant costs. And here's the rub. They're worried that most claimants would never have received the compensation. So that's what they're saying here. The deal would resolve the very costly and reputation-damaging litigation over one of their most famous products ever, Johnson's Baby Powder. Many of the thousands of lawsuits against J&J were filed by women who say they developed ovarian cancer after either using Johnson's baby powder or a former J&J product called Shower to Shower over the years. Some lawsuits have alleged that the powders contained asbestos, which contributed to a rare cancer called mesothelioma. Jill, we actually learned about this settlement in connection to Johnson & Johnson's bankruptcy claim to a subsidiary. Let me explain that real briefly. J&J is one of these companies, we've talked about this on the podcast before, that was pursuing a legal strategy that's been called the Texas Two-Step. It's where these companies will create smaller holding companies for the purpose of housing their liabilities, and then they'll have that small holding company file for bankruptcy and being like, look, we filed for bankruptcy. We can't pay any of these lawsuits. Well, more and more of these companies are being called on it. J&J was called on this in January uh, by a judge, which is one of the reasons some people suspect they went out with this $9 billion offer to end all of this. Moshe, I just remember using this baby powder for so many years as a kid. And in fact, I just Googled to figure out if it's still on the market. Apparently, up until quite recently, the company was still using um, talc in its baby powder globally. Apparently, they stopped selling uh, baby powder with um, talc in it in the United States a couple of years ago. Jill, one of the reasons they didn't take it off the shelf, because they would see that as an admission that they were doing something wrong. So ultimately, it was a legal strategy to leave it up on the shelves. From Good Morning America, a new World Health Organization report found that a large number of adults, nearly one in six worldwide, are affected by infertility in their lifetime. That is more than previously thought. The organization said the new finding emphasizes the urgent need to increase access to affordable, high-quality fertility care. The organization also reported the new estimates found that there is about the same amount of infertility between regions and that rates are comparable among all countries and income levels. Just to put some hard numbers there, Jill, one in six worldwide is between one and a half and two billion people around the world. Of course, both men and women can experience infertility. And that's what they were talking about in this study. Uh, One expert telling Good Morning America that the results of the new report did not surprise them and that the number may actually be higher than reported. Previously, it was reported, according to the expert, that one in eight people experience infertility. The WHO study here says that it's in one in six people now. By the way, this study only reported on female-male relationships with unprotected intercourse for one year without pregnancy. When you actually factor in all types of relationships, uh, the number is actually much higher. A Pew study done a few years ago here in the U.S. found that a third of American adults say they have used fertility treatments or know someone who has. Moshe, you and I were talking before the podcast. This report does not go into any reason why they think that infertility is so high and getting worse. 
it is notable that they they say it's across all countries and and income levels because yeah. one of the theories is that it has to maybe do with diet or chemicals or things like that and you'd have to imagine that that would really vary from country to country from Reuters, President Biden said on Tuesday that it remains to be seen whether artificial intelligence is dangerous, but warned technology companies that they have a responsibility to ensure that their products are safe before making them public. Biden told science and technology advisors that AI could help in addressing disease and climate change, but that it was also important to address potential risks to society, national security, and the economy. When asked if AI was dangerous, he said, quote, it remains to be seen. It could be. The president said social media had already illustrated the harm that powerful technologies can do without the right safeguards. I'm not meaning to laugh. It's just like (laughs) we are in uncharted territory here. Totally. And it comes, as we told you yesterday, if you listen to yesterday's podcast, that Italy has temporarily banned ChatGPT. Other European countries are looking at the same thing. Europe's looking to get very aggressive here. We told you on one of the podcasts last week that Elon Musk, uh, one of the Apple co-founders, Steve Wozniak, and hundreds of other tech officials are like, can we take a freeze here on AI for a second? Like, it's getting really smart really quickly. Let's make sure we know what we're doing, everybody. There's a tech ethics group called the Center for Artificial Intelligence and Digital Policy. They've actually asked the U.S. Federal Trade Commission to stop OpenAI from issuing new releases of GPT. We've already gotten from GPT to GPT-4 in just a matter of a few months. Of course, GPT-4, we talked about on a podcast here. We're, we're actually doing a pretty good job, Jill, I think, of staying on the AI front here on this pod. We really are. I, not to <laughs> pat our own backs here, but I, I definitely think so. Well, I think it's an important story, and we're not here to scare my fear monger in any way, shape, or form, but this is a very compelling thing, and there's some very influential companies, countries, et cetera, that uh, are asking some serious questions about this, right? And so GPT-4 recently, as we talked about it, has wowed and yet also appalled some users for its human-like ability to generate. Apparently, GPT-4 can also hallucinate, Jill. What? Makes you feel better (laughs) at home. Yes, it's incredible what we can do here. So there are some senators. Chris Murphy is one of them. He's a Democrat from Connecticut who are being like, maybe we should deal with this over in the Senate. It might be time to pause this AI development, uh, in the words of former President Trump, to figure out what the hell is going on. Uh, I believe he said that on a few different issues. But that's ultimately what I think more and more people are saying here, which is, can we just take a breather? Would it hurt us for a little bit to just take a breather and figure out ramifications, rules, etc., before we create something that we regret at some point? Friend of the pod, Scott Galloway, who doesn't know that he is a friend of the pod, he made the point that while that does make sense in theory. You've got countries like China who are quickly moving ahead. um, China ain't pausing anything. Exactly. And so if we want to keep up, then we really do need to to move forward with with the development of this technology. But but would a 90-day break hurt? Would a (laughs) six-month break hurt? Really? Can we just get some rules on the books before we, you know? Mosh, they're already on the fourth iteration of this thing. Think about the iPhone. I think we're on what? Uh, iPhone 16 at this point or iPhone 14. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead. But I think we're on iPhone 14 and that's been around for a decade. Actually, both numbers are relevant. It's been 16 years since the first iPhone. I believe we're on 14. Either way, you get about a new iPhone every year and some you know, some years it's not that revolutionary. Whereas you've gotten to four ChatGPT updates in a matter of six months. 
I don't know this because I'm still, I still have an iPhone 10. (laughs) What's it gone to at this point? Put it this way. I have an iPhone with one camera, not three. Okay, from CNN, First Lady Jill Biden appeared to walk back suggestions that the White House might invite both LSU and Iowa's women's basketball teams. Remember, LSU won the title. Biden said on Monday, quote, last night I attended the NCAA Women's Basketball Championship. So I know we'll have the champions come to the White House. We always do. We hope LSU will come. But, you know, I'm going to tell Joe, I think that Iowa should come, too, because they played such a good game. A trophy for everybody, Jill. Participation trophies. Slash Biden. Yes. (laughs) It is um, traditional for the national champions, of course, to be invited to the White House, but not for the runner ups. LSU star Angel Reese tweeting a link to the story, which included Biden's comments, calling it a joke, along with three rolling on the floor laughing emojis. And then in a comment on an Instagram post, she said, we not coming, period. So Jill Biden's press secretary actually sought to clarify this on Tuesday, saying in a tweet that her remarks, the first lady intended to applaud the historic game and all women athletes. She looks forward to celebrating the LSU Tigers on their championship win at the White House. Before that clarification, uh, one of the analysts over at ESPN, Stephen A. Smith, echoed Angel Reese's sentiment replying to her tweet saying, I mean, absolutely zero disrespect to the first lady, but you are a thousand percent correct. (laughs) That is a bad suggestion. Runner-ups do not get invited to the White House. Why are we trying to change it now? I completely agree with you, Angel. And that was not the only controversy following LSU's win. Reese has also been calling out what she sees as the double standard in terms of the reaction to a hand gesture that she made towards Iowa guard Caitlin Clark. So Reese gave Clark what's known as the you-can't-see-me hand gesture multiple times throughout the game, including after LSU had won and the rest of the team was celebrating. Um, and then she chased Clark down to keep taunting her. Yeah, so the you-can't-see-me literally is like holding your hand in front of your face. And Reese was like chasing Clark all over the court after LSU had won, the rest of the team celebrating, and she wanted to make a point of doing this gesture in Clark's face. Reese got a bunch of criticism for poor sportsmanship. Clark, though, did make a similar gesture to another player earlier in the tournament. In a press conference after the win, Reese said, all year I was critiqued for who I was. I don't fit the narrative. She said, quote, I don't fit the box that y'all want me to be in. She said she was critiqued for being too hood and too ghetto, her words. Uh, But when other people do it, you don't say anything. Yeah, this blew up on social media. Keep in mind, Angel Reese is black. Uh, Caitlin Clark is white. So there was also uh, an allegation here or a feeling that of, of racism potentially here. Some criticized Reese feeling, again, that chasing down a losing player around the court with that gesture was uh, inappropriate, bad sportsmanship. Others defended her, saying she had a total right to do it. And again, Clark had done it in a previous game to another player, again, amidst the game. I don't want to get too into details here. But ultimately, what was pointed out was that there was no criticism for Clark, a white player, when she did it in a previous game, but there was criticism for Reese for doing it. Keep in mind, by the way, Reese is known as a very aggressive player. She's gotten a whole bunch of technical fouls this season. She tends to be very aggressive in people's faces. Uh, Interestingly, Clark did an interview after all of this, being like, what do you make of all the criticism? 
And she took the high road. She says, Angel's a tremendous, tremendous player. I have nothing but respect for her. I love her game, the way she rebounds the ball. I don't think there should be any criticism for what she did. She actually said she wasn't really paying attention to Angel Reese uh, while she was doing it on the court. Uh, Keep in mind, by the way, you're talking about two of the best players in women's basketball. Both of them will go on to the WNBA where they might play together. They might play against each other. And what's interesting here, Jill, is we so rarely talk about uh, women's sports, women's basketball, and that's something people are talking about here, which is women's basketball has gotten so good that there, in some cases, you have a bigger conversation right now about the women's national championship game than the men's national championship game. And there aren't many sports that you could say that about. Maybe soccer is one of the few that women's soccer is more popular than men's. Yeah, there's talk out of this that it's time to expand the WNBA because there's now so many talented players in women's college basketball, 50 years post-Title IX, et cetera, that there just aren't enough slots for all the good players out there. So they're talking about potentially expanding the league uh, to be able to accommodate all these players. I can tell you, I was only watching the women's tournament this year. Um, They were great. All right, now time for On This Day. We're going to go way back, Jill, to start here. 409 years ago today... (laughs) April 5th, 1614, (laughs) Pocahontas and John Rolfe get married. Mm. Their marriage actually brought peace between the English colonists and uh, the Powhatan native tribe that was there. At the time, the English were suffering, and they really needed the help of the natives. And so then this marriage goes down and helps ensure at least a, a temporary good situation there. All right, let's fast forward to the 20th century. On this day, 102 years ago, 1921, the American Birth Control League was founded. It is the precursor to Planned Parenthood. The founder was Margaret Sanger. Interestingly, the the reason why this all came about, Margaret Sanger's mother had died at the age of 50, and Sanger felt that it was due to the fact that her mother had had 11 kids and seven miscarriages. And she believed that her body basically wasted away because of that. And so she believed that women should have control over how many babies they have and this idea of birth control. And so they spent years and eventually the funding and the fundraising they did, initially the American Birth Control League and then Planned Parenthood, uh, helped lead to the development of birth control a couple decades later. All right, on to some music history. We'll start with some sad news here. On this day, 29 years ago, we lost rock legend Kurt Cobain. The Nirvana lead singer died at just the young age of 27 after he took his own life. I remember, Jill, watching Nirvana Unplugged. Uh, It was one of their last performances. They would play it on uh, repeat on MTV for years. Just such an incredible performance and such an incredible talent. All right. Some of you might be familiar with that. Fast Car by Tracy Chapman turns 35 years old today. Brings me back to my camp days, Moshe. Jill, there's a great story about Tracy Chapman and that song. She actually performed it at the Nelson Mandela birthday tribute concert in London in uh, June of 88. She was actually a stand-in for Stevie Wonder, who was having technical difficulties. So she performs it, and it starts climbing the charts after that, of course, uh, helping to reinforce her popularity and the popularity of the song. And finally, Jill, turning 55 years old today, that's Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel, out today, April 5th, 1968. Okay, so really interesting, Moshe. Um, Simon and Garfunkel originally intended to name that song Mrs. Roosevelt, but uh, Mike Nichols in his film The Graduate asked Simon and Garfunkel to contribute music for that film, and the main character was called Mrs. Robinson, so then they changed the title. Mrs. Roosevelt just does not have the same ring. 
Here's to you, Mrs. Roosevelt. <laughs> no, it just it wouldn't work. I mean, I'm 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 glad Mike Nichols had the vision to call his character Mrs. Robinson and get Simon and Garfunkel. Jill, it reminds me of when we were talking about the Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons song, Oh, What a Night, that that song was originally supposed to be about about prohibition ending, being able to drink again. And they were writing the song. They're like, no, let's make it about one of the guys in the band and their first time with a girl. (laughs) Also a much better subject, I think, um, than prohibition ending. Right. And I think they came out around the same time. So, Oh, What a Night and Mrs. Robinson interesting origins, but we're happy with the way they came out. We also like our theme music here at the Mo News Podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Keep following us over on the gram, uh, the Mo News account at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H for the latest and greatest. And uh, for all of you who celebrate, a happy start to your Passover to you, Jill, and everyone else who's listening. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.